0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my pleasure to be joined by Madeline Pennington, author of the new book, Quakers, Christ in the Enlightenment, just published this month by Oxford University Press. Madeline is the head of research at the Theos Think Tank. Maddie, I'm so glad to have you here. Welcome to the show.
0: It's great to be with you.
1: Well, Madeline, I'm so excited to get into this book with you. But first, I wonder if you might be willing to tell us just a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so as you said, I am currently head of research at Theos, which is, I think, tank looking at um, essentially the relationship between faith and society. So we have a, a broad Christian basis, uh, but we really are looking to enrich the debate around faith and society, which is so often um misinformed and simplistic we're really thinking you know how diversifying the range of um pictures people have of faith in the public conversation I think is really important so that's what that's what I'm doing now and before that I was um a research scholar in more academic research looking at Quakers and that was the stream of work that this came out of so early Quaker um history in particular Um, And immediately before Theos, I was um, working somewhere called Pendle Hill, which is a retreat conference and education center in Philadelphia. Um, And there I was writing an intellectual biography of um, the Quaker and eventually Anglican George Keith. He was one of history's um, more colorful and um, argumentative types. Um, and that was work that came out of the book that I'm here to discuss today, which is really about the relationship between Quakers and um, other Christians in the 17th century and how that impacted Quaker belief.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Um, you know, just to get us into this subject a little bit uh, who who were the early Quakers? Um, tell us just maybe a little introduction into their founding and, and what initially set them apart from other early modern um, kind of revolutionary uh, England uh, Christians.
0: Sure. So the Quakers came out of a really turbulent time in England's history. It was um, just closing up the uh, English Civil War and there were lots of radical groups popping up the Quakers emerge in the north of England, um, various different um, sort of pre-existing groups and some extras as well, and um, basically not happy with how things are in the established Church of England at the time, um, and they um, largely um, rally around this unifying spiritual breakthrough of a man called George Fox. Now, that even giving that story sound to me feels a little bit ahistorical because of course, there was not just one person and Quakers are still don't have formal leaders that there's this um, idea that we abolished the priesthood. In fact, uh, Quakers like to say, no, we abolished the laity. Um, and, in, and so there's this sort of radical taking it to its extreme interpretation of that Protestant idea of the priesthood world believers, which is basically um, this feeling that anybody can have a direct relationship with God and um don't need human intermediaries, um, in terms of how they initially come around and Fox's own spiritual breakthrough. In fact, it was the result really of a sort of drinking game gone wrong in this kind of weird mix of teenage angst and um, Puritan angst that he was, I think he was 19 at the time, and he was in the pub with some other Christians, and they said, Oh, whoever Um, can't drink this has to buy the next round and he said well if that be the case then I leave you left his money on the table and that flung 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 him into um existential despair and he left he left home he became a traveling preacher and then um had this realization quote there is one even Christ Jesus who can speak to your spiritual condition and that sense of jesus coming to, to teach his people himself quite quickly and develops into the sense that we all have this inward teaching light of christ and that's the sort of central belief of quakerism really that that is the sort of unifying force of all of these pre-existing unhappy groups
1: that's right and so you, you started to touch on this a little bit already but um, we'll come to this really important idea throughout your study, which is this figure of Christ, this Christology that really is a major theological driver um, in the development of Quaker theology. But a, a big part of your argument is that the way that historians have been telling the story about the way Quakers developed their, uh, their religious beliefs and their social practices you've found that the historiography or the the storytelling of historians has been a little insufficient what's the main problem with the way that historians look at Quaker development and and what are you suggesting is a better alternative
0: so um the the book started with a question which is really the central question of early Quaker historiography which is why did Quakers change so I've set out this view of um you know this very personal spiritual experience and over time they become what is essentially you know like any other religious movement it has um set leaders it has lines of command it not spiritual authority lines of command formally but they do have ministers and they have international communications and really it it becomes um once more organized but also calms down um in terms of the expression there are sort of various um, commentators at the time saying, oh, you used to rave around and foam at the mouth and you don't seem to do that so much anymore. So the question is really why that happened. Um, and the existing narratives have all pretty much assumed, or at least argued, um, that that was as a response to persecution, that they were basically trying to be um, politically, socially respectable. It's what I've called a respectability narrative um there are there are problems with that there are unanswered questions with that and i set out um in the book some of the ways in which i think that that is inadequate in terms of the timing of those changes the type of those changes um, and the really the nuances of what's going on um but there are also various reasons why that kind of um that narrative has taken hold i think above all it's this sense of uh, which is basically kind of swallowed whole early modern stereotype that non-conformists were basically anti-intellectual, illiterate, um, didn't really have much of a mm. theological sophistication of their own. Um, and actually there were reasons why the Quakers wanted to push that view. They were saying, you know, we're just simple folk. We're being taught by by Christ himself. And um, There were also reasons why pretty much everybody else wanted to push that view as well, because... And um, everybody else was trying to be in the in crowd as the boundaries of the um, established church were being set um, and that was it was a very very um, fluid time religiously and um, so there's this sense that all of these changes were caused by persecution but in fact um, it doesn't seem to work and I've said well if we just look beyond this stereotype of nonconformists as not really having Theologically sophisticated position, um, then actually looking at their changing theology and particularly their changing theology in conversation with others around at the time actually maps much more accurately onto those changes. So it's really about saying, or the sort of um, the labels I've had in the book, which um, of course there is some sense in which they want to be respectable. You know, People are not just these silos. And this is, relates to my work in the Theos as well. Like we're mixtures of theological beings and political beings and social beings. But, but it wasn't just that they were trying to be respectable. And in fact, they become in some ways less respectable over time. I've said that what they're trying instead is to bolster their theological reputation. So their core claim is, is a moral um, protest. Think back to George Fox in the pub. It's a moral protest against what Christianity is doing at the time. And and they are saying, no, we are the true Christians. We are the true church. Now, if you're going to claim that you're the true church, you really need to not be heretics. So um, they are really trying to refine how it can possibly be sort of, um, well, orthodox is such a contested term, but possibly be acceptable to believe that Christ has come to teach his people himself. And that this is a claim you can get behind if you are a good Christian. Um, And so that sort of process of theological refinement is not the same as just a process of political refinement. They look a little bit different. Sometimes they look similar, but sometimes they look different. And that's really what the book is trying to trace.
1: Yeah, it's a really compelling argument. And the, the main theological locus, or the, uh, the the center of the theology that's really driving these developments is around um, their Christology, as the title suggests, Quakers, Christ, and the Enlightenment. And, and you you call out how Christology was really the big issue of the Protestant Reformation as a whole. Could you elaborate a little bit on how Protestant Eucharistic debates help us situate the Quakers in their their Christology and their metaphysics.
0: Sure. So there was so much going on, of of course, in the um, Reformation, but a really key issue, which not only was a core issue for um, Protestants in general, but also was really the dividing line between Lutherans and Reformed Protestants, Um, was was about the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist and whether that was a real presence, whether we describe that in spiritual terms, in material terms. You know, there's sort of huge, very nuanced and detailed debates about that in the 16th century. And then um, in the course of sort of me thinking about changing Quakerism, I think one of the things that really struck me was that actually so many of these debates... Are actually also arguing about the nature of Christ. Um, and even the arguments that are not arguing directly about the nature of Christ, those really famous, you know, ask someone who doesn't know about this period, you know, who do you associate with the 17th century? Someone like Descartes. And that's sort of that those issues around sort of, you know, what is ultimately real, you know, is it, mm. you know, the body, matter, mind, whatever. It, and in a sense, Christology is sort of applied metaphysics because it's really about how yeah. does spirit and matter um, relate. Um, I'm aware, that I'm, I'm not saying that that the soul and God are the same there. I sort of almost <laughs> walked into a heresy, but, but these are the same kinds of issues going on. And um, really what I've said in the book is that you know, we we shouldn't really disconnect these things. Actually, there's this huge issue that is very well known, very well rehearsed, going on at the centre of the Reformation, and then say like 200 years later, the Enlightenment's really getting going. And in this middle period, actually, a lot of these debates are, are quite clearly the same kind of issues that have been destabilised in the Reformation, and really people trying to piece back together the certainties. And of course, the really tricky thing about Christology is that it maps onto both sort of philosophical end debates, that kind of, um, you know, what is ultimate reality? What's the relationship between spirit and matter? What's the relationship between human and divine? There's that. There's also those political debates and the issues of authority and, and who can I listen to? And the Quakers then both sort of come together because they're saying, no, Christ is the ultimate authority, therefore I'm not going to listen to anybody else. And they're a threat, they're a political threat because of that. Um, But that's a Christological claim. Um, And then the the theological debates that I trace through the book are really uh, looking at that more metaphysical end that's, you know, basically how are we going to justify this to people who know about theology, you know, people these are really important issues at the time. You can't just say, oh, well, it's, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious, you know. Um, actually, it matters a lot, whether they're heretics or not. Um, and and the, the core part of that debate for me is really, um, who is Christ? Is, is Christ that historical um, person, the, the risen Christ, or is it, um is Christ a sort of spiritual principle um is it somewhere in between the two and I think Quakers almost back themselves into a corner a little bit that they don't they don't start out thinking um you know what actually Quakerism is a different Christology like the, the the issue I have with the church is that you know I don't actually believe any of that stuff about Jesus um but once they start saying, well, Christ has come to teach his people himself, which is the kind of a refrain that comes over and over again. Um, once they say that, given that there is not a physical Christ there, <laughs> then the question is, in what sense do you mean that? Um, and they say things like, for example, well, the flesh is just a veil, which of, which of course is not, um, you know, if you believe that human and divine elements of christ are in a, a sort of true union then you can't just strip away the human elements of jesus identity and say well that was that was just a disguise you know that these are, these are well rehearsed heresies throughout christian history and they find themselves stumbling into them and i think the fact that they pop up again you know they're not trying to be heretical but these things are quite pervasive and um at key moments in our history when things have become a bit agitated. We see them pop up again because people are sort of um protesting against something else going on in society. And it's an overcorrection almost, if you know, if you want to look at it that way. Um so, so really they're trying to grapple with that central, you know, how can we still remain Quakers? We really feel like we've had this wonderful experience you know that's that's not actually even an intellectual position this is a, a sense of God in their lives um but now we have to explain ourselves and now we have to explain ourselves in a way that's going to support rather than undermine our claim to be true Christians broadly speaking they do that over time by focusing less on the spiritual and trying to find other ways to affirm yes of course we believe that Christ's body was important of, of course we believe that you know um, his death on the cross atoned for our sins as well that this is the connection between that and what's happening now
1: I wonder if you might um, comment a little bit about this this thread that gets drawn out, um, throughout your study about the the Quakers' role in the early Enlightenment, which you've touched a little bit on with with bringing in kind of what people automatically associate with seventeenth uh, century, you know, metaphysics, applied Christology, um, but you you make the suggestion that maybe Quaker uh, role in the Enlightenment has been maybe a little bit over-egged in the historiography. What what, what kind of are you getting at there when? when you see that maybe historians have made too much of this um, secular enlightenment impetus as opposed to a more theological um, motivation?
0: So um, I think that, I mean, there is this whole other thread going on in the book, which is basically we need to think about theology in our historical explanations. Yeah, And an example that I use there is... Um, John Pocock talking about how the early Enlightenment in England can be seen as a sort of secular rationalization of spiritualism. And he uses the writings of Gerard Winstanley, the Digger, to talk about that. And um, looking at Gerard Winstanley's writings, in fact, although he is talking about reason and spirit, and there's often this sense of, you know, radicalism in the 17th century is either sort of rational excess or it's. Spiritual excess. He says, you know, when he, when he's talking about um, the reason and spirit in his writings, he says things like, "Well, some people may call him the Prince of Peace, but I call him Reason." For example, well, that's that's talking about Jesus, and I think people have have missed that in Christ is a really, I mean, <laughs> hey, in Christianity, Christ is unsurprisingly the central motif, and you can talk about Christ in terms of reason. And you can talk about Christ in terms of spirit. But if we only talk about reason and spirit, then we're missing this huge, you know, big crisis that's going on, which is basically all of these people are talking about how to make sense of Christ. And a lot of these radical groups popping up, you have, you know, so um, the fifth monarchists, they're talking about Christ's reign. Muggletonians, it's a Christological, it's reframing what we do about Christ's body. Um you know, there are are sort of Christological challenges in all of this going on. That's destabilizing. And then on the other side, the people who the Quakers are talking to also are talking about Christ. So um, one of the chapters in the book, I look at um, some later Quakers in the 1690s and are quite far down their process of theological refinement at this stage. And um, the philosopher John Norris says you know he's talking about inward illumination and and how important that is in his own thought and he says you know this isn't quakerism by the way which shows how um associated those things have become but he then talks about how his own view of inward in, inward illumination relates to his view of Christ and the divine logos and you know these ideas sort of augustinian ideas of the logos um Drawing heavily on John's Gospel, um, it seems that in so many of these conversations, there is a a Christological concern which has not really been um, has not really been centered in the conversation because something else is always going on. It's sort of we're seeing the the trees. Not the woods, the <laughs> other way around. Um, that I mean, I will say. I mean, the book, obviously, you know, it's developed from my PhD thesis. It's, it's not a sort of comprehensive account of the Enlightenment by any means, and I wouldn't claim it was. Um, but I really hope, I mean, either me or somebody else um, does more work looking at these sort of Christological themes and where they're coming out, because hmm. to me, it seems just everywhere, um, and really by not thinking about how Christ relates, I think we're missing a whole thread of intellectual history, which potentially be really fruitful in explaining what's going on there. Um, The other thing I would say is that, you know, even as a trained theologian, Christology is one of the more complicated elements of theology. So, um, you know, that is no mean feat to really unpack what these people are saying about Christ and to unpack what heresies they're avoiding. Um you know, theology is complicated. And I can see I can sort of see why that hasn't really happened so much, but um I think it's worth it. Hmm.
1: This isn't a major um a major thread or a major chapter to your book, but you do mention this really interesting connection between the Quakers and a and a group of Dutch, is it the the collegiants um who were associated with um William Ames so you have this this um, early Quaker attempt at maybe partnership partnering with some of these Dutch Congregationalist separatists um, because they they find some common cause but that doesn't ultimately go through is um, but then ultimately they they have to find their um, their conversation partners within other English restoration you know other nonconformists in the in the English restoration could could you tell us a little bit more about um about that little episode which just seems really interesting and, and understand Quaker's relationship with other even even other non-separating nonconformists, perhaps
0: yes there was a Quaker community um well there were several Quaker communities in Holland and they they dabbled in seeing if they could be partnered with um, the collegians who seems to have quite similar ideas and had started off as quite a sort of prophetic movement but had gradually in much the same way in some ways that um, the Quakers appear to have, have done have sort of calmed down and, and but had moved towards more sort of rationalist interpretation of that Christ the illumination um, and the Quakers were making some inroads in Europe at the time Um, but basically they didn't want to go quite so far as the collegians in that sort of process. And so their relationship becomes, I suppose, increasingly strained over time. And in the end, it's clear that they're not the same group. And and history, you know, says the rest. But what is really interesting, I think, about that is that there are these radical possibilities. Um, They also, there are suggestions that they... um, not certain, but relatively likely suggestions that they had stuff to do with the Spinoza at the same time, um, and there's. I think that they're looking for allies, but when those connections shuts down, then this fundamental impulse that I mentioned at the start, this theological reputation quest, <laughs> um, really they're left with with little other option but to go for um the more established voices in england firstly and i think that that's important because it's easy to sort of just assume that radicals or dissenters or nonconformists call them whatever you like just talked to each other or they were just sort of being radical with each other all the time and actually they were they were talking to the non the non radical the mainstream voices and you know you can't just ignore the mainstream um, certainly not before social media arrived. Um, so, so that's that's one thing that was going on. Um, the other interesting thing about that is that they they look west. So um, part of that is looking west back to England, but also going further and and to America. Um, and even today, Quakerism is really small in Europe, mainland Europe, that is. <laughs> not the uk um there, there are some pockets of quaker communities but it's it's not huge but it's really big in america um and i think partly there are, there are other reasons for that as well i mean that is also partly to do with escaping persecution and setting up quaker colonies and, and all that stuff it becomes a more attractive option for them um but it's it's partly this shutting down of the sort of more radical possibilities and I think that there is, um, there is something about Quakerism surviving, and it's, it's one of very few of those more radical movements in the 17th century that did survive, which is really all about the theological debates that I've traced in the book, because basically it's them not being content just to speak to the radical voices. They they are in conversation with really the hard nuts to crack, um, much more so than is is ever really accepted.
1: That's right. And so, Maddie, you trace this um, the story of, of this early Quaker experience, this theological pressure to start to 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 Christianize or to to maybe conform to the more. Um, Accepted orthodoxies, Uh, but then towards the end, you you know that you bring up this Keithian controversy, where with all this pressure to to you know quote unquote Christianize or just become more more palatable, they still have um, to maintain an identity as Quakers and and their distinctive um, flavor of of Christian piety. What does that controversy show us about the limits of the pressure? to theologically conform
0: thank you for um raising the keeping controversy i think it's a fascinating i mean i would say that i suppose but i think it's a fascinating case study in i've called it a line in the sand for the quakers and i think that's essentially what it is that they um essentially i mean i Essentially, what happens is that they're debating about a a very well-respected Quaker preacher who's been really at the forefront of this whole process, George Keith, is accused by an ordinary, um, not particularly well-known minister, of of preaching to Christs because he's preaching, he's stressing that we know we do believe in Christ within and Christ without, i.e. historical, outward and inward. Um, And that sets off a massive chain reaction that basically means the Quakers can't just be working this out at an elite level. They need to be um, really grappling with this stuff as a movement and to establish what they really think on it. Um, now, there are, there are two interesting things there. First, the so this that all happens. The first steps happen in Philadelphia, um, and... Quakerism is set up in such a way that basically the most powerful Quakers are in London, and Philadelphia at the time is a bit of an outpost. And when the Philadelphian Quakers are writing back to London what's happened, they're they're very, very keen to say, you know, basically, first things first, we do believe all of this stuff, (laughs) i.e., you know, the incarnation, the creeds, not the creeds, because, well, they do believe the creeds, but Quakers would call that a confession rather than a creed. It's another story. So they they do believe all of this. And that is the main important thing. So it does show that the whole movement has recognised the importance of having a strong theological reputation. On the other hand, they are concerned that what uh, George Keith is preaching Undermines what they call the sufficiency of the light, which by this point is essentially the kind of core Quaker doctrine, which is that all we need to be saved is is the light within. Now that that, that isn't just complete relativism, or you know, that's not just a modern kind of wishy washy idea. When the when the light within is Christ, <laughs> they're still saying he needs to be taught by Christ to be saved, but that actually that can happen without outward teaching. Um, and and so they. They privately argue that, even when they're publicly still trying to look respectable. Um, And and not only do they just argue that, but they also use um, early Quaker writings, which is about, what, 40 years, 20 years even old, really quite recent, Quaker writings to prove their points rather than um, traditional Christian sources. It's, of course, a point of Quaker doctrine, quote-unquote, that they're arguing about. Um, And and Keith says that one of them, um, uh, in frustration, says to him, we're not arguing about who's the best Christian, we're arguing about who's the best Quaker. Um, And it shows that by the end of the century, through this process of um, refining what they mean by the light within, which is largely a Christological debate, they have come to a position where they can't really go well, they don't feel they can go much further at that point and quaker identity itself it's not just that they're trying to explain their views in terms of traditional christian principles but they also have a quaker identity that they're trying to manage as well and those two things then become yeah. sort of equal influences on the movement and needs to be given weight they, they've sort of come of age as a movement. If you um the interesting thing um in addition to that is that unlike um so Ke- keith wants them to basically have a confession of faith that just checks that everyone coming into the movement act- actually believes all the stuff that they're arguing that they do believe about traditional christianity and they um they neglect to do that they they think that that would basically crush the spirit of quakerism to go back on their central mm. feeling that no, we shouldn't be forcing people to say what they believe that has to arise from a spirit within them. Um, What's really interesting is that then, from then on, the Quaker movement doesn't actually maintain that balance between those two poles. They become much more Christian, and they sort of drift in that direction without a sort of um, settled view of what Quakers believe. And for me, one of the interesting things is, as a Quaker, that quakerism has has since then therefore been really open and you might even say vulnerable to the wider movements of what's going on in society at the time because it because it's always had this sense of um you know it's really important that that we don't just come up with a creed or even just say the creeds that already exist it's not that they didn't believe those creeds it's just that they thought that creeds were a mechanism of power, um, but of course that kind of leaves the back door open. Like, you, <laughs> um, and I don't mean like, oh, we'll let anybody in, but, but but it does mean you don't have much control over the sort of core principles over time and, and over centuries. I think we've seen that. So there is a story beyond the book, in fact, about what about how these issues are managed after. Um, period that i was studying which is up to roughly 1700 um but that's for another time i guess
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great well maddie you've you've written this excellent book quaker's christ in the enlightenment and, and i'm so grateful for you taking the time to come and talk with us about it before we let you go i wonder um you know, what, what are you turning your attention to next? Are we looking for a part two? Are you going to take this into the 18th century for us? Or, or what else might you be um, looking forward to, to working on now?
0: Great. I, um, so I also did write um, specifically, as I think I mentioned at the start, an intellectual biography of George Keith, which slightly pushes that forward, that story forward a little. And I would love to do a bit more on that. And I think that there is something really at the heart of what Quakerism is, um, but that is to be explored here. um that that would be wonderful to explore that. um my, my day job, and you know my primary ascension really is is on theos work at the moment, um which is um largely looking at the role of faith in society more broadly. and I think that those two things are related uh insofar as these are all I mean, in everything I've said, and I think this is my central fascination really um you know we can't as I said we can't just tumble out theological spiritual moral political social elements of ourselves but integrated and those two things relate both at a macro level across society but also within individuals and that that tussle between those two things I think um it it is really you know almost the central question that any of us are really grappling with at any one time um so lots of theosis work is looking at that question from very different angles of course um, for example looking at what a christian view of work might look like or what a christian theology of inequality might look like these are all questions for our society as we find it now um but i guess but I, I would love to do more on um, the specifically quaker story the other thing is that i would love to see somebody take up the, the sort of crystallogical elements of what i'm uncovering and and apply that more widely because i'm very aware that in the book i've written um it's really just sort of starting that process um i mean it's um, most of it is a, is about how the Quakers navigate those changes and and i think that's really key i mean that they're the the best example i think but That's certainly not the only thing going on. Um so yeah, if anybody's interested in writing that book, (laughs) maybe I'll write that book. But also other people should also help because it's more than one person's job. (laughs) Um yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So if there's any um, you know, future PhD students who are listening in right now, um you can get in touch with Maddie and and talk about your dissertation topic. Well Absolutely,
0: yes, please do.
1: Well, thank you so much for uh, for coming and talking with us about your book. Again, this has been Madeline Pennington talking about her new book, Quakers, Christ in the Enlightenment, available now from Oxford University Press. Maddie, thanks so much for being here.
0: Pleasure's all mine.
1: And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of New Books and Christian Studies. You can go to our website at newbooksnetwork.com and find more great interviews in the Christian Studies channel or or browse around. You can find great interviews in history and American studies and literature and music and art. Anything that your heart desires. There's all sorts of books for you to become acquainted with. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, the best thing that you could do is share it with a friend. That's the best way to spread the word about what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.